Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Today's guest is Benjamin Beaupre. I usually introduce my guests with their title or their role in politics, but I don't really know how to define you, so help me. Curmudgeon. Curmudgeon with opinions and uh, occasional crazy person with a sign you see on the street corner. You are active on providing information on Facebook groups. I see you a lot and see you indivisible. The most detailed information you get, though, comes in the form of cheatsheetlocal.blogspot.com. According to this website, your goal is to present nonpartisan information for the local governments. How did you get started doing this? It was actually through the uh, CU Indivisible group. They uh, were asking for people to go out to local government meetings and learn more about what's going on with local government because it's kind of hard to follow in the news. It's so sporadic and, you know, the coverage is usually just about an issue here and there. There's a lot of good coverage, but it's hard to find, you know, and follow if you're just looking for, you know, something having to do with Urbana or just looking for something having to do with the county. So I started the county cheat sheet, the cheat sheet CC blogspot.com. That one pops up on the Google usually if you do a champagne cheat sheet. Started putting uh, notes down in there and trying to explain it to myself because it's way bigger and way more complicated than I realized at the time. I think kind of everybody, even people who get elected in the office, don't realize how huge the county is by itself, let alone the, the cities and the intergovernmental agreements and cooperations they have going on from, you know, MedCAD to ARMS police database that's in the news they have to replace in the next year. It's going to be a, a big thing. They they have to get it upgraded, not replaced, is apparently the, the plan because they don't have time to replace it. So little things like that, it just keep popping up. Do you go to the county board meetings or are you watching them on television? Because your level of detail is amazing. Uh, both. Right now we're down on folks. We had a whole bunch of people that would go out uh, to various meetings and various organizations, and we'd meet uh, about once a month to kind of collaborate and figure out what's going on all around town. But uh, after the midterms, you know, people got busy with their regular lives again. So lately, it's been pretty much just me. It's uh, difficult to keep up, but thanks to the internet and uh, the videos being online, you know, and a lot of insomnia. <laughs> I, I watch a lot of government meetings and take a lot of notes to stay awake. Okay, so help me follow what's happening. Democratic precinct committee people recommend a candidate recently, several times. Democratic leadership then goes in a different direction. Can you help me understand why there's strife within our own caucus? A lot of it is normal Democratic issues uh, you know, within the party. Leadership that's been around for a while and it's done the, the, the battles, uh, done the fights. Uh, right now there's a lot of African-Americans in power and positions of power. And, you know, they just being in this town, you know, a lot of younger, especially white progressives might not understand all the nonsense, you know, that people have been through to get where they're at. So from their perspective, it seems that they feel a little bit threatened by these uh, young progressive groups that are predominantly white that haven't you know, paid their dues, I guess, in a way, but that are trying to unseat them. So there's these challengers to people, this diverse party that they want to protect. And uh, younger people see that as they're the, the old guard. They're not working. Uh, they, they don't listen to us. They, you know, they think we're just a bunch of racists. They call us racists out in public now. 
in you know they're hurt they're upset the folks who are under attack feel like this is about race even if the younger progressives don't know it you know part of that whole underlying idea of we don't always know when we're adding to problems in the system we're socializing the system to kind of think that everybody should be treated equally this colorblind idea of all being treated as individuals whereas you know a lot of the folks have been around the block a few times have a more community-minded approach where they they expect a little bit more deference to fix this problem from white people that you know they need to be more proactive about their selection and not just you know act like you know we can start from scratch right now and a lot of the younger progressives are pretty good about that. If you talk to them about some of the newer ideas, I guess they're not really new ideas. They're new to a lot of white people like me. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, like the candy book, you know, how to be an anti-racist and uh, stamp from the beginning. A, a lot of history and a lot of learning is going on uh, with the intersectionality of the movements that have developed since Trump came into office that... You know, the younger generation and the older generation still have a lot of problems and stuff to work out. But I I think both sides still kind of underestimate each other, but still have plenty of valid reasons to be upset at each other, too. Just the usual, they're going to disagree on some things, old guard, new folks coming in. And then some of it is just the old issues that we, we aren't communicating with each other. You go into a white progressive bubble and you know you'll hear a lot of things that make sense in white progressive bubbles but you go into the uh, african-american community here and you you hear about trump being a problem as a direct threat to their lives but you also hear about how policies locally are a direct threat to their lives and how they're being ignored and the little things that seem like victories to people who live down the street in a nicer neighborhood aren't, you know, so critical and get forgotten, but that's a daily fight for a lot of people, a daily fight with mass incarceration and uh, over-policing. So I think it it's very central to what the Democratic Party is everywhere, but especially here in a purple town like ours. You mentioned the word unseat. What is it going to take to unseat that sanctimonious jagoff? <laughs> Well, I'm usually the one saying harsh things about Rodney Davis in conversations. Really, it's just going to take a lot of work. I mean, he he knows how to uh, play both sides. He, he he tries to get this bipartisan shtick of his out there, the folksy, you know, I'm a, just a regular guy, look at me with this Democrat, look at me passing this, you know, non-controversial bill. But, you know, when it counts, he stands with Donald Trump literally stands next to him right after the Jewish massacre the day of later that day you know after you know people are finding out that the guy was inspired by this vile white nationalist rhetoric Trump keeps on fueling with his little dog whistles and inciting hatred and against this other that's coming out to get people it's really disturbing and all the conspiracy theories I, I wish there was a easy answer that we could make the better argument and convince our conservative friends, you know, who are still with the Trump side as opposed to the never Trumper conservative friends, that we could just rationalize it for them and be like, hey, this is the truth. You know, here are the facts. But they don't trust the same sources that liberals read. And they have every reason to distrust regular 
media outlets, science, uh, university professors, you know, there's this whole us versus them and anti-intellectualism going on with the, the Trumpers that it's, it's intense and it's social media helps divide us in these little bubbles where we're only getting what confirms what we want to hear and trying to break through that, even with, uh, friends like uh, my mechanic buddy, we were both pretty independent. He went to uh, the more of the Trump route. I saw the, the campaign and just saw red flag after red flag, putting people in boxes and calling them a threat and not just, you know, some, you know, foreign enemy that we're at war with, but our own neighbors, uh, you know, Democrats and heck, even Republicans, you know, the never Trumpers, he calls human scum and they're like, they're the biggest traitors in the world because they went against, you know, the unitary executive and it is so bad right now that I, I wish there was a way to get through the disinformation, but it is pervasive all throughout our lives right now. I don't know how to how to fix that. I wish I did. We need to get him out of the White House. So let's talk about some local people are for Bernie Sanders, some are in the Elizabeth Warren camp. Where do you sit and how do you see Champaign-Urbana and the greater community as a whole? Most of my liberal friends uh, know that I'm a right winger from days past. Me, I'm still kind of figuring out where I stand with, you know, how things have changed just in the last few years. I'm still fairly conservative in some regards. I was never big on the uh, social conservative stuff. Uh, I mean, I voted for McCain. I voted for Bush twice. I I could justify that because, well, I disagreed with Democrats on a lot of things too. It, I'm, I believe in small federal government, things like that. My politics is complicated. I've never had a, a side that really fit me well. It was always, uh, you know, my first vote was for Bill Clinton. He's probably considered a conservative at this point, you know, just the way he was campaigning in 96. I think the important thing right now is for people to look out for the vulnerable among us, try to make sure they're safe, try to make sure they're doing what they can to learn about what's going on in their community. And you know, the politics can wait as long as we make sure the system is protected, that a working system, a Republican form of government, small r Republican form of government, where we still have a say, where we aren't enemies to each other. You know, we fight out these political debates civilly, you know, in parliaments and congresses and, you know, local school boards, but we don't go home as the enemy. And I think it's important that we, we get back to that even if we may never agree on abortion, passionately disagree about abortion, and we will never be able to tolerate, you know, voting for somebody who disagrees with us, maybe. But that's that's good. That we need that debate. We need to have people passionate about their views. But we can't be at war with each other. And it seems like we're getting closer and closer every day to viewing each other as some sort of monster, either fascist or socialist monsters. And these are just, it's your mom. This, this fascist Trump supporter is your mom. It's your dentist. It's your, your neighbor. It's your city council person. It, it's not, they're not bad people. They're scared. They're trying to figure out what's going on 
you know, trying to keep their kids safe, trying to protect their country, trying to be patriots. And if you treat them like monsters, it, it's going to make you look like a monster. And that doesn't work either. And I don't know. I, I, I wish there was easy answers to this, but I think protecting the vulnerable is probably the most important issue for me right now. Anything people can do to look out for refugees, try to learn more about African-American neighborhoods, read books about African-American history, even if you don't think that's real history, even if you think that's revisionist history, you might learn that some of the things that you think about history are actually revisionist history themselves. It, I think people need to start reaching out more to each other and you know, not worrying about how much they win as much as making sure the system will work again. Because right now, I don't think it is. Is that what you're focused on between now and the primary and now and the general? What is your focus on as an activist and as an excellent writer? What are you going to put out there? I think uh, probably right now, I, I don't have a, a game plan for the general election. Last time with the midterms, I uh, tried canvassing for the first time. was working on the cheat sheet a lot. So I, I like to get people connected to the things that actually work for them because a lot of people... They want to get involved, but who has time to do all this stuff? I mean, there, there are people who, you know, have full-time jobs, do all this crazy political stuff. They blow my mind. I have no idea how they pulled off and still managed to feed their families and, you know, get anything done ever. And, you know, there are way less involved ways to be involved than having your life completely dominated by politics. Sometimes it's as easy as just showing up to a meeting once a month. You know, the, the mentoring thing is uh, big in the local news right now. Helping a kid once a week for an hour, part of the schools, working with the schools, and just helping their desperate need for uh, men to be involved. The kids are looking for a lot more uh, men, but they're also looking for female mentors as well. So there's little things where people could help a lot and they just don't know it. And part of what the cheat sheet is, is uh, trying to encourage people to step out of their bubble and show up to one of these boring, boring government meetings because they are often not exciting. You know, when a fight breaks out, it's usually because something went wrong as opposed to democracy functioning well. But, you know, the fact that it doesn't break out in fistfights is democracy functioning pretty much as well as democracy functions. So it, it's interesting in that when you show up, there's almost always presentations of people who are doing amazing work and looking for people to get involved, even if it's just a little bit of time, even if it's just a little bit of money. Nobody wants to hear about donations right now. Everybody's begging for, for cash. But uh, there's usually just some way to be involved because they need boots on the ground. They need people to knock on doors. And, you know, maybe that might not be your you know cup of tea but there's so much online now too that needs to be sorted through and worked on there, there's just so much need for people to just be involved and know what's going on and it's really easy to tune out and just look at the big headlines and worry about the nation collapsing your recent blog spot one of them is about the city of champagne police review board tell me a little bit about a history of this and why it's so important Emily Rodriguez would probably be the best person. She's the chair of the group or the subcommittee. Most of what I understand going on with the police review board, it was a start when they set it up. You know, there's a lot of public concerns uh, with the, the Carrington shooting that 
blew up into the Champaign Community Coalition, which is another great place if you're looking to go online and check out one of their meetings. They're online now. A lot of community groups go there and do presentations to get people involved and say, hey, we, we need people to help with this or that. And it, it's a good good starting place. But with the police board, it always was a start. And one of the things the chairwoman Rodriguez pointed out was, you know, it, it asked for input from the board to improve itself. And when they did that and it got public attention, the city council reacted in a way that uh, kind of surprised everybody else as if they had done something wrong and were too pushy and were misusing city staff and putting the chief of police on the spot, which, you know, this chief of police signed on for that very thing, uh, Cobb, our, our chief of police. He was wanting to address these very issues. So, you know, putting him on the spot is kind of part of what he signed up for. He seems to be well-intentioned, but there are competing interests here. You know, the, the cops want to make sure that they are protected and aren't put through litigation that, you know, is just going to make it even more expensive and complicated or forced to do things that might put their lives in even more harm's way. And the activists are concerned about this over-policing issue in certain communities. And, you know, they keep on running the numbers and who gets the cops called on them, how the police respond. It, it can be very different for the same thing, how a situation turns out for, you know, someone like me interacting with the police and uh, someone like yeah, my downstairs neighbor. That was one of my eye-opening moments is that I have a very different experience with our Champaign Police Department than some of our African-American neighbors do, is when they were going door to door after uh, an incident in my neighborhood off of Kirby, it was day and night just from the yelling I heard downstairs. And it was, it was just disrespectful. And to me, it was, yes, sir, and you know all that. And you go to this police training institute and they, they say, you're the reason why we're doing this, as if there's this good citizenry and then this criminal underworld that, you know, it's the same people. And those are my neighbors too. There's a big need for this review board to reform and become more useful. And there's going to be pushback and fighting, but I'm worried that the city council is afraid that it's going to stir up problems more than it's going to help anything that they're trying to protect their police department, which is their interest. But I, I think people who care about criminal justice reform need to get out there and show their support so that when it goes wrong, there's a way to do something about it as opposed to what we've seen time and time again, that when it goes wrong, we, we don't get all the information. When we do, it's hard to trust it. The police review board seems to be one of those first steps that we took. And when it tried to take a second step, that always seems to be the hardest step for any reform is that second step. Pilot programs are always easy, but it's hard to find a second step. How do we get the majority of people to understand what's real news? I mean, what you do is a big part of that. Our democracy is mostly as stable as it is because we can afford to keep it stable. We, we are living on the thin veneer of civilization here. It can fall apart and has before and will again. And other places who are dealing with information warfare are closer to 
that chaos than we are right now. And that's only because we can afford a bigger buffer. So I think there's a lot we can do with education and uh, trying to help people be more critical of the sources of information to track back things that seem sketchy. If there are two sides of a story being presented, how much weight one gives to them is going to often come down to things like political ideology, though. There's only so much we can do. But right now, one of the biggest problems is we have a political party that unfortunately, as much as they themselves sometimes say they dislike Trump and don't agree with him and don't like his methods, in public, when they aren't talking to journalists off the record, in public, they're promoting disinformation from not just Trump, but anything that helps them politically and political animals are going to do what's in their interest. But this is so dangerous and beyond just winning an election. They're, they're misleading their own constituents, let alone liberals who are annoyed that a Republican is lying his butt off about this, that, or the other to protect Trump. They're, they're lying to other Republicans. They're, they have Republicans convinced that the things they read on the Daily Caller are more valid than things they might read in the Washington Post. And there's plenty of reasons to criticize the Washington Post and big ownership conflicts with media. I mean, that's been a thing in America for a long time. Sometimes the people who own the newspapers pick the candidates they liked and pick the news that helped them as opposed to the others. Uh, that's always been a problem, and that's something we should always call out. But it, this is worse than that. It's We, we have the bully pulpit and an entire major party from the bully pulpit all the way down to our local boards promoting a reality that isn't based on any objective facts. It's based on this Trumpist truth, this underlying truth. And that is one of the scariest parts about autocracy in Russia is the objective reality has gone out the window with all these state supporting TV stations. You have Trump saying, hey, the, the real information is on Fox and own or that one American network. It's very distorted, but people trust it because they, they've been conditioned to doubt the media. Republicans trying to win elections in the past, going after the mainstream media, is, it, it worked. But it's taken a really dangerous turn and not because Democrats don't pull some weird stuff with their political wins and victories and messaging and, you know, optics and all that, but because they've conditioned their own base, their own constituents, the people who support them to believe nonsense and they're using them to protect their political careers for a guy they don't even like half of them. The ones who do like them are usually the, the ones who are really scary too. You know, the ones that are just as bad as them. Last question before I let you go, and I have to ask you, who locally, whether it's an elected official, an activist, a volunteer, who do you admire? Oh, there's so many. Wow. Marcy. Marcy Adelson Schaefer. I see her at so many meetings, speaking up, trying to do the right thing, getting arrested at the Capitol for the DACA kids who couldn't go there themselves because they'd lose everything if they tried to protest out in public. Some of them still do. She uh, really goes out there and tries to do the right thing and learn and gives 
people so much benefit of the doubt. Vote Champagne, Champagne County Voters Alliance guys who are uh, doing candidate guides and getting nonpartisan information and getting get out the vote, canvassing for just doing so much work because they saw that how bad our turnout rates were for voting and they wanted to do something. They came in, yeah, one guy's a DJ looking like a DJ and I was like, how, how are these guys going to go to businesses and pitch the ideas they have? I'm, I didn't take them seriously. She did. And they have been amazing. And now I try to help them out as much as I can because I judged I shouldn't have. And she, she was there at that meeting. It was, I think maybe just me and her at that first voter alliance meeting. And she gave them a chance. I was like, I'm not so sure. And here we are. We got a candidate guide and it is amazing. Marcy deserves that shout out. Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Benjamin Beaupre, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me.